0: Welcome to Women in Analytics After Hours, the podcast where we hang out and learn with the WA community. Each episode, we sit down with women in the data and analytics space to talk about what they do, how they got there, where they found analytics along the way, and more. I'm your host, Lauren Burke, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Today, I am so excited to have Riesling Walker joining us. So, Friesling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for
1: taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Lauren.
0: Absolutely. I'm really excited to have you on and learn a little bit more about your background and the path you've taken. So just to start off, could you tell us a little bit more about your background in data and what inspired your path?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First, I'll say I was very lucky and stumbled into analytics very early on. Um, I went to Georgia Tech for my undergrad, and Georgia Tech is really career-focused, So one of my first homework assignments freshman year was to go to the career fair. Most companies are not looking for freshman interns, and I literally had no idea what type of job I wanted to do. But I was lucky enough to just like pick a long line and end up talking to Capital One, who had a one-week case competition for analytics. And I applied, and I got it. And from that competition, I got a return offer to intern. And after that internship, I got a full-time offer to go back. I spent almost three years at Capital One in their partnership credit cards office, supporting various credit card portfolios like Kohl's and Saks Fifth Avenue, working on government sales exams, and working on fraud prevention as well. I wanted to move back to Atlanta, and so I took a new job and I started at Home Depot. I spent a year there on the online side doing internal search engine analytics, and then I moved store side doing analytics for the merchandise execution team which is sort of like a store operations team. They work with associates in the stores, packing down merchandise and doing projects to make the merchandise shine. During the time at Home Depot, I also started the Georgia Tech Online Master's in Analytics program. Then a recruiter from Atlassian reached out to me about a marketing data science role. So I moved over there. I realized I wasn't that interested in marketing data science and I wanted to move internally, but Atlassian was actually founded in Australia So all of the roles that I was interested in just didn't have a good time zone that overlapped with the Eastern time. And that did not work out for me, which is why I started looking for new roles externally and how I ended up at Microsoft. So I'm here at Microsoft. I'm on the customer experience, data analytics and insights team. Our team's focus is increasing Microsoft's cloud revenue by looking across products and across job areas to try and unlock hidden value with data science. But I actually just accepted an offer to go back to Home Depot. So I will be on a data, I will be a data science manager on the merchandise execution team that I mentioned earlier. So by the time this podcast airs, I will be over there. So I've had a long journey, lots of different positions, but lots of analytics along the line.
0: That's awesome. And huge congrats on the new role. That's a really exciting transition you're about to make.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited for it.
0: And so speaking of that, you've actually previously written a lot about changing roles in the data space and making moves both internally and externally like you're about to do. So how do you do and how do you evaluate when it's time to move on from your current role?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I really think it's different for every person and can depend on your life stage or career stage. For me, I've changed roles or at least considered changing roles for a ton of different reasons ranging from wanting to move from Chicago to Atlanta, a large step increase in conversation, if I'm bored or just feel like I'm not learning in a role, or if I'm really, really excited about the next role, or if there's a manager I don't like. I think there's so many different reasons that someone might think about changing roles. I will say, I know I've changed roles a lot. I feel like it's almost acceptable early in your career, but as I step into this manager role, I know how important it is for me to have a consistent manager over time. So in this career stage, I will definitely not be changing as often because I know it'll more directly impact other people. For me, when evaluating if it's the right time, that's hard. (laughs) Sometimes when you wanna make a change, there's not really anything that's hiring or you can't really find the right positions. And sometimes when you don't wanna make a change, you might get laid off from your current position or your former director might call you with an exciting opportunity. So when I think about a change, I like to make a grid. My columns are the different opportunities I could pursue, and my rows are the pros and cons. And I think just writing it down, trying to gather as much information as possible and being as objective as I can really helps me evaluate if it's right to make a change and what the next step should be.
0: That's a really interesting approach with the grid. You're kind of coming out about it from a data perspective, which (laughs) really fits pretty well. What are some of the pros and cons you usually look at?
1: Yeah, it's hard because I feel like for every good thing about changing roles, there is also a bad thing. And that's why I try and do the pro-con grid to really like weigh out the benefits and the costs. I also think it's really important to understand the whole picture when making a decision or especially going into negotiation conversations. So I think the biggest pro I touched on earlier is compensation. When you change roles, that can be one of the fastest ways to make large step changes in compensation. But you also have to remember the things you're giving up, like unvested stocks and bonuses. The benefits packages are probably different. And I also want to point out, you don't always get a pay raise when changing roles. I personally took a step down in compensation when changing locations. Another benefit I think about is just like the ability to learn. My favorite thing about joining new companies is getting to learn so many new things and meet so many new, interesting people. But the downside to that is you spend so much time ramping up that it'll take you longer to execute on a project, which means it will take you longer to get promoted in that position. The last thing that I always think is a positive is getting to choose your own work. Everything sounds so exciting. You know, the grass is greener. But just like you're selling yourself in an interview, the hiring manager and company are also selling themselves too. So the role might not be quite as amazing as you expected. So I find the best way to balance these pros and cons is to change roles internally because you have more information when choosing your own work. You can talk to more people, you're more familiar with the company. You get to learn a new area of the business without sort of ramping up on those things like HR benefits, tech stacks and more that you might have to learn by changing companies. And it's a clear time to renegotiate your compensation. Although you can negotiate anytime, but that's a completely different conversation. But I just find that changing roles internally is the best way to balance it, which is why I always try to do that first when I think I'm ready for a change.
0: That's a really good way to approach it. I've definitely, like, I've personally moved internally and like you said, it is really so much easier to get up to speed, especially in the data space, you're familiar with the data and how it's connected a little bit better. And even if you're moving into a new area or role, you at least have that familiarity with the people you might be working with, the data you might be working with, the company as a whole and its goals. So that's a really interesting perspective to bring about when you're thinking of making that change.
1: Yeah. And especially on the people, like, It can be really hard to keep up with mentors and people you admire from previous companies. And you never know how people are going to move within a company or which mentor or advocate or person you've worked with before is going to show up in your next project, even if it feels like an unrelated area. So I think people is another one. I mean, relationships take so long to build at new companies. So changing internally is another great way to keep up with those people.
0: Right. That's absolutely true. And so for anyone thinking about making a transition in the near or distant future, either internally or externally, what are your suggestions and how do you set yourself up for success when you're about to make that change?
1: Yeah, I think my first piece of advice is start early and often. Start before you even think you want to make a move. I had a mentor tell me once that if you start looking for a new role when you're already unhappy, it's, it's too late. And he's so right. It takes you at least three months to land a new opportunity between the time it takes to look for roles, apply for them, meet people, interview, and negotiate and the background check. So if you start looking when you're already unhappy with your role, think about how much more unhappy you'll be in another quarter. And it might make you take an opportunity that's not the right fit for you just because you're so excited to get away from what you're in now. So the way I do this is I just am constantly networking and meeting new people Because every time you meet someone, you might figure out that you're interested in working with them, or you might be interested in working on that subject area and you can learn from them. This could be like as simple as participating more actively in meetings, being more active on Slack and Teams channels at work. And like, it's not work. My favorite Teams channel at Microsoft is our Fiber Crafts channel. Um, We post pictures of our knitting and crocheting and we have monthly happy hours (laughs) where we all get on a Teams call. And we knit together and I get to meet people from all over the company and in roles that I didn't even know existed. And it's just like such a fun way to meet people.
0: That's so fun. Yeah,
1: it's, it's honestly the best. It last had one too. And so I'm hoping Home Depot has a fiber arts channel. And if not, I might have to start one.
0: You definitely should.
1: The other thing that's really important to like meet people is scheduling one-on-ones, going to conferences and DMing people online who are doing cool stuff. It's just more ways to meet people. But I think that is the way you build your network and find out what the right next step is for you. But you also need to build your brand so that you can position yourself to be considered for that next role. And that means, you know, kicking butt in your job, helping others so they know you're a person that can be relied on, and maybe writing and posting publicly to build your brand outside of the company as well. So yeah, start early, network, and build your brand.
0: Awesome. And so speaking of changing roles, you have an interesting perspective as (laughs) someone who's had the opportunity to be in a lot of different industries and see how analytics works within them, including banking, software, retail. So what are some of the key differences and maybe a few of the surprising similarities that you notice throughout your work in these roles?
1: Yeah, it has been really interesting to move between companies, and I didn't realize how different my roles would be at each one. One really interesting thing that I've noticed is just the speed of the business. And by speed, I really mean the time it takes between the idea and the measurable impact. So Capital One was my first role and probably one of the slowest roles I've been in just due to regulation in the industry and how people use credit cards. for each decision we wanted to make, we had to do a lot of analytics around recession testing to make sure this would still be good. And that's a government regulation. Then had to go through credit and legal approvals. And then after the decision was implemented, it probably took four to six months at least to see how a cohort might behave after this change. And then if you want to account for seasonality, you're looking at like at least a year and a half until you can really evaluate the results of the decision, which is just a really long time. What's funny is my second role was on the Home Depot search team, which was the fastest team I've ever been on. My first day I was like playing around at the search engine, trying to understand the business. And I found a really small bug on their website and I showed it to my manager. He said, yeah, that's a bug. Screenshot it, throw it in this Slack channel, and I'll get an engineer to fix it by end of day. And I was like, what? End of day? Like, don't, don't we have to go through an approval process? Don't we have to like measure the impact to show the value? And he's like, it's, it's just a bug. Like, obviously, the impact's good. No one needs to approve this. Like, you just do it. I mean, obviously larger changes to algorithms or experience have to go through approvals, but with so much volume on the search engine, and because most people search and then purchase in that same visit, you can start getting indication of results within the same day and really test changes within weeks, which is awesome. So yeah, I mean, the speed of work is completely different in pretty much every industry and even every team you're on. It depends on mostly customer lifecycle and government regulation. So things with longer customer life cycles probably need more analysis up front because you're investing more time before you can make a change if the idea doesn't work. But if you're working with shorter customer life cycles, it's a lot more like iterative and testing because you can just, you know, throw something at the wall and if it doesn't work, remove it really quickly and it really doesn't impact many customers or it doesn't impact customers for as long as a time period. So I think the speed of work is just like really interesting and can completely change the way that you work from team to team.
0: Definitely. I've seen a lot between industries, but also what you mentioned between teams, because a lot of times, especially looking at like analytics or data teams, the data you're working with in that division, say you're in the customer side versus maybe the marketing side, that's completely different data in some ways that you're looking at it, right? So for you to want to execute on a project in one area, it might be very quick. You might have people ready to work on it. You might have a team dedicated to fix things like that that are popping up Vers- versus like somewhere else. You might have to be the one to drive that and push that along and make sure that, right, you're able to accomplish that in a timely manner.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even within a department at and I was on marketing analytics And I was supporting a marketer who worked on top of funnel metrics and another marketer who worked on bottom of funnel metrics. So top of funnel is really awareness, like new customers, how do we land someone and just have them think positively about the brand and not selling at that point? Well, bottom of the customer is like, how do we get them on the phone with someone? How do we get them doing a demo of our product or a trial, a free trial to get them used to it and playing with it and using it? And so the life cycle between top of funnel and bottom of funnel of when you can measure impact is also huge. So yeah, it really depends team to team and sometimes project to project, but that's been something that's jarring, changing teams and industries.
0: Yeah, so what are the different types of data you've found yourself working with and how can it differ across these different industries?
1: Oh gosh. Yeah, I think that's one thing that's similar at every company is there's always something wrong with the data. <laughs> but every company has their own unique thing wrong with the data. I've worked with so much data I've worked with. Credit card data, fraud claims, online clickstream data from Adobe, store operations like timing in and out, marketing data, Salesforce data, cloud usage data. And every piece of data has its own quirks. You know, Sometimes it's quality issues when it's human entered or there's issues with the implementation on the website. Sometimes it's a lack of documentation. Sometimes it's a lack of latency. Sometimes it's hard to join data sets because their keys don't work together. Sometimes it's business definitions. You know, how do we measure this? Is everyone measuring it the same way? So I think, you know, every time you change, there's a whole new set of things to learn about the data, which is, it is exciting, but it's also challenging to ramp up on all of the new complexities.
0: Right, and the complexities between different industries and the data within them vary, right? Because some places you might have really, really, Enormous data sets, but you're just looking at that one data set, that one table. But other areas, you might have a slightly smaller set, but it's across 10 disparate tables, and you have to figure out the correct way to combine those before you can even begin working with them. I think it's really interesting just the different perspective it can give you on how you go about working with these different sets of data to kind of come back to the same methods in every industry, but the way you get there and the way you approach it might have to be a little bit different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like for that example, when I was working online, it was one table of all the clickstream data and that was pretty much what we used. But while working store side, it's like, okay, well, we have to understand the structure of all the stores and the structure of all the products and you know what people are doing in the stores. And those are three completely different data sets that you have to figure out how they work together and if they can work together.
0: Totally. And so with these transitions you've made between industries, between teams, seeing all of these different types of data sets and how they work and what you need to do to get them in the correct format, do you feel like that has helped you develop a perspective that – across these different industries can be helpful, even if it's not the same type of data, the same type of approach.
1: Yeah, it is always interesting seeing similar problems at new companies and saying, oh, I've seen a way to solve this, but also sometimes the solutions don't work across each place. Sometimes the issues are different and it's just a new problem to try and solve.
0: (laughs) That's a good lesson to learn that, right? We hear a lot about all of these really cool methods um, especially in data science. There's this new model coming out. There's this new way you must approach data cleaning. You must approach visualization. You must approach your empty and missing variables. But right, like you said, sometimes that doesn't work in the particular domain. And I think that's important to recognize as you gain that experience.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the things I didn't touch on yet about the differences between companies is just the differences of tech stacks. I've lost count of how many ways I've learned to query data <laughs> between Teradata, DataBricks, GCP, Azure, like there's so many different ways and not all of the solutions work the same. Some of them execute things differently so there's different efficiencies, you know. Tableau and Power BI are very different in how you can bring in data and their best practices. So, yeah, sometimes solutions at one company don't work at the other. Sometimes you're really excited about the new tech stack, sometimes you really miss things about the old tech stack. I also think one change I didn't really expect was how different like the way of working was. I expected differences in tech stacks, but I didn't expect differences in what I'm calling like the communication stack or how people work together. These are things like, you know, using PowerPoint decks instead of docs and pages, or if your team defaults to sending emails instead of using Slack by default, some teams are in meetings more than others. And that's normal expectation or on camera versus off camera, what different job titles mean. So like at one company I was at, everyone above manager was given the title head of something. So it was really hard to figure out like what is the hierarchy in areas of the business I wasn't familiar with. So I think that's another thing people don't realize they have to ramp up on when they change companies is like, oh, I was really good at communicating in this way and people don't communicate like that here. So you have to spend time building these relationships and trust and like communicating in new ways even though you thought like, oh, I would just be ramping up on the data in the subject area as well.
0: That's so interesting. And I'd like to add on to the communication side. I think between companies, you also see differences in your ability to communicate with people on different teams or in different areas. Like you were saying with your group where you just meet other people in the company and you knit together, that's a way that you're able to find people in different areas and just already build that relationship. Versus if you have that maybe more email-based culture, you don't have random Slack groups. You can join to kind of find more of the community. You don't have like communities of practice for little areas. So I think that's interesting to kind of think about as well. And I really think those type of things can enhance how well your company and your teams work together just because having that ability to not only connect when it's necessary really helps you have that basis for some of the things you might need to be doing in the future. And that just sets you up for success.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Learn, connect, and collaborate with the global data community at the 2023 data connect conference on July 20th and 21st in Columbus, Ohio. Data connect brings together industry leaders, technical experts, and entrepreneurs to discuss the latest in data, analytics, machine learning, and AI. Learn from high-quality content delivered by thought leaders like Cassie Kozarkov, Chip Uen, Stephanie Domas, and Wendy Betchelder. Use promo code WIA after Hours for a 15% discount off regular or virtual conference passes. We hope to see you there. So thinking of some of the other things that might help you when you're thinking about transitioning to a new role. I know you studied math in undergrad, and then after you worked as an analyst for a couple of years, you ended up going back for your master's in analytics from Georgia Tech. And so what inspired you to jump back in, and what did you gain from that experience?
1: Yeah, so I actually had one more role that I left out of my intro, because it's a lot of roles. When I was looking to move back to Atlanta, I accepted a contract position And I thought it was going to be analytics and it really wasn't, and I really didn't like it. And I knew at the end of my contract, I wanted to do analytics. And I was like, gosh, how do I tell hiring managers that all I want to do is work with data? And I picked the Georgia Tech online masters in analytics for a couple different reasons. The first is it's completely online and flexible. It's not quite go at your own pace. There's like, you know, deadlines for homeworks and exams, but you pretty much have a week anytime it's assigned to when it's due. So you can do it on your own. The videos are all recorded, so you can watch them anytime. And so I knew I could do that part-time while still keeping my job. Well, I mean, the first reason was really I wanted to get back into analytics. The second was it was part-time. And the third was it's really cheap. I did the whole program about over three years and the whole thing was around $12,000. And Home Depot and Atlassian have very generous tuition reimbursement programs, so I paid for less than half of it myself. And I will say, having that on my resume really helped with interviews. A lot of people saw it as a signal that I really was passionate about analytics, and taking the classes helped me in my interviews, but also executing on the job. I started taking classes, and I was able to implement the things I was learning in class right away to my work, which I think was really great and really helped advance my career as well. The other thing I gained from it is the network. Speaking of those like communities that we were talking about, there's a Georgia Tech online master's in analytics Slack community that's only for GTOMSA students. And through that Slack community, I've made friends. I found the job that I'm in right now. And I found backfills for when I leave positions to make sure that my teams have someone to fill it when I leave as well. So the Slack channel is absolutely amazing. But yeah, I mean, I really did it just to get back into analytics and ended up going through the whole program and finishing it out.
0: That's awesome. So as you made that transition, you also made the transition from analytics, from an analyst role to a data scientist role. Do you think the master's helped you make that transition and what else encouraged you to make that move?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I will say I don't think you need a master's to advance your career. I was told pretty early on in my career that you can sort of think of a master's as like one to three years of work experience. These are things you can learn on the job. It just sort of helps accelerate your career. I don't know if my shift from analytics to data science was necessarily intentional, but what I found was the work that I had been doing in analytics kept shifting over to data science. When I moved off my analytics team on the search team at Home Depot, within three months, they actually changed all those titles to data scientists. And when I moved off the merchandise execution team at Home Depot to Atlassian for my first data scientist position, they then also broke that analytics team in half and made half of them data scientists and half them analysts. So I think that transition is sort of naturally happening with a lot of people. And sort of as you advance your career, you're going to be using some of these data science techniques in your analytics to be solving problems. And so I think it's a combination of, yeah, my skill set grew through this master's in analytics from Georgia Tech, but also the industry is kind of changing. The lines are blurring between analysts and data scientists. And so it sort of was a natural progression for me as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense. A lot of roles that are data analyst or data scientist kind of actually fit more in the middle, and you are doing analytics work, you are doing data science work, but it really can almost blur if you're on the right kind of team, especially if it's a more limited member team, just because you need people to fill those gaps. I've kind of seen a new title more recently that's called analytics scientist, and I feel like that actually might be in the middle of that. I'm seeing a lot more data science data analytics related job titles that might be defining that divide a little bit more, but we'll have to see as that progresses.
1: Yeah, I I think people are trying to figure out the right titles. I think there's so many. I mean, there's analytics engineer. I saw on LinkedIn someone saying, you know, maybe we should make a business scientist role. I think like What I do instead of looking at job titles is I look at job descriptions to see what skills they're looking for. It takes a lot more time. It really does, but it helps figure out the right role. I think another thing that's important to keep in mind is one thing they talked about at Atlassian a lot was building balanced teams. And so... I feel like it's really good to have someone who spikes more in analytics, you know, quick and dirty problem solving, being able to pull SQL, likes talking with stakeholders, and also having someone on the team who leans more data science, who enjoys that heads down work, likes to build more complex, statistically rigorous models because having a whole team of one of those people, like they'll get work done, they'll add good value, but having both of those kinds of people on the team they'll help push and grow each other. They'll also learn from each other. And if one person doesn't like doing something, the other person might enjoy it. And you sort of get to do more of the work that you enjoy and less of the work you don't enjoy because that is something someone else enjoys too. So I like teams where the title is sort of like ambiguous because then you get people more interested in model building, more interested in business stakeholder engagement and Yeah. So I'm okay that the titles are sort of wish-washy right now because I think having a balance of interests is really valuable.
0: I think that actually makes it easier to kind of position, not even internally, but within your own team, right? Because if your role has a title like that, like you're saying, it makes it easier for you to just take on more of those responsibilities or just shift a little bit into something that's also considered that responsibility.
1: Yeah, and figure out if you even like it. You know, sometimes you want the shiny new title and you don't, and you realize maybe you don't actually enjoy that type of work. So I think being able to dabble and try and meet people with different interests and skill sets is a great way to figure out like what you actually want to do.
0: Yeah, I think putting yourself out there, like the ways you've mentioned, just to kind of learn what's out there, how they look in different industries, how the same role might differ by responsibility just across teams across industries all sorts of things like that there is a lot of variation out there and until you know it's there and you see it you kind of don't really know what area you want to be you want to focus on
1: yeah yeah for sure I mean there's been so much variation between all of my roles it is crazy how many different things you can do out there (laughs)
0: Yeah. And speaking of putting yourself out there, one of the ways that you have done it in the last couple of years is getting started with public speaking. So how and why did you get started with that?
1: Yeah. Public speaking is a great way to get yourself out there. You get to go to conferences and meet a ton of people. So I actually started public speaking because I attended a conference as a participant. The conference is called Measure Camp. And the whole idea of Measure Camp is there's no agenda until the conference starts. And anyone can sign up to speak as long as there is an open time slot and an open room or video room since it was remote available. I was not planning on speaking, just planning on meeting people. And I noticed a topic about halfway through the day that Marissa Goldsmith put on the agenda. And it was to lead a discussion about why 50% of the participants at the conference were women, but only 20% of the people who signed up to speak were despite anyone being able to sign up at any point. Right before that, I grabbed a couple of books that I knew statistics from, I pulled them out. So in that conversation, and we talked about data, we talked about why each one of us chose not to speak. And we talked about what things the conference or we could do for each other to encourage more women to speak at future events. And there I opened my mouth and I gave an open commitment that I would speak at the next conference that I was able to which I thought no one would remember. (laughs) It turns out that's not true. Dylan Lewis remembered, and he messaged me a couple months later and encouraged me to apply to speak at a conference. I came up with so many excuses, but after his relentless encouragement and a few sleepless nights from anxiety, I applied to speak. And I got it. And after that talk, I was approached by someone else to speak at their conference. And I've just been speaking more and more. And my confidence has grown tremendously. And as a shameless plug, I will be speaking at the Marketing Analytics Summit in Las Vegas in June, June 19th through the 22nd. So please check it out.
0: We will absolutely link that so people can check it out and hopefully attend. I do want to say that Measure Camp is absolutely so fun. And if you ever, (laughs) it's awesome. If you ever have a chance to attend, it's free. It's like she said, you sign up the day of, it's almost like a bunch of lightning talks that are full-length talks. You sign up the day of, you can speak on any topic. You don't know who is going to be there speaking on what until you get there and you see the board all filled out. It's a really fun experience. And it's a very, I feel like low stress way to start public speaking just because yeah yeah it, yeah it's, and
1: that's when I thought I was gonna get my first talk because I was like oh that's so low stress and the talks like some of them are really big speakers who talk at conferences who use it as a way to like pitch it or try a new talk and other talks are just like you know small round discussions. They usually do like a data therapy session where like everyone just like complains about work. I mean, there's some like really chill ones, some really technical ones, but it's just a great way to meet other data people.
0: It really attracts data enthusiasts because it's really low pressure. It's free. You don't know what's going on. You don't know who's speaking in advance. You're not paying for a ticket to a conference. It's usually on a Saturday. So I feel like the people you meet there truly want to be there, truly want to learn and want to just kind of be able to chat and meet other people who are in data and analytics, and just kind of want to have a good time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I will say also, I've never attended a bad conference. Measure Camp is particularly fun, but if there isn't one in your area or you can't make a Saturday work, like go out there and go to a conference because you're you're going to meet amazing people.
0: That is absolutely true. The best part of conferences are often networking especially if it's in an area you don't usually find yourself in, if it's not near where you live, or if you're meeting people that are coming from different areas that you wouldn't meet typically. It's just a really good way to enhance your perspective and meet other people who make you better just by being able to teach you new things.
1: Yeah, I think also with the pandemic, a lot of conferences have gone online or hybrid. It's a great opportunity to learn more things and see more presentations. They're a little harder to network, but- honestly, like it is the best part about conferences is being able to meet so many new people. So when I attend virtual conferences, I put a conscious effort into like participating in the chat or like the Slack channel or emailing speakers afterward that I really connected with to let them know because the content's great. Don't get me wrong. I've learned so much from conferences, but it's really those connections and discussions about the conferences that last a lot longer. So virtual conferences are good too. Just know that like it takes effort to build those relationships from attending those as well.
0: That's absolutely true. I feel like you're very good at networking. And I know you have an article on networking one-on-one. So I'm definitely going to link that as well because oh, the thanks. tips you've said just during this podcast are already amazing. But- I know you have more amazing tips in that article that people can definitely benefit Thanks. from.
1: And networking is hard. It's a skill that I have practiced over time. I'm always working on it, but like people make it look easy. It's not. It's hard. <laughs> Put effort into it. I swear it'll pay off.
0: <laughs> it's a tremendous resource. And speaking of resources, so I like to ask everyone, what is one resource that you feel like has helped you in your career that you think might help others who are listening?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think building your network of people is the most important thing because people help you with so much. They help you with finding a new job, figuring out the best resources to solve a problem, telling you about conferences, and like just fun to talk to. I've personally found my data people through Slack communities specifically the Measure Chat community, the Data Angels Slack community, and the GTOMSA Slack community. But there's other Slack places like Locally Optimistic, DBT Slack, or like there's communities on Discord, LinkedIn, Medium, Twitter, like I'm sure other places I haven't even heard of. I think there's like Data TikTok now, which I am not a part of, but it exists. So don't feel like you have to move places or put a lot of effort into it. Find your community where where you spend time on the internet.
0: There are absolutely data communities everywhere and for almost every niche you can probably imagine within data and analytics. And like you said, you don't have to find those in person. If you aren't somewhere, there are a lot of in-person meetups. There's online communities that you could have a similar experience with and meet people through. So before we wrap up, how can our listeners keep up with you?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on LinkedIn or Medium. I'm also very active on the Measure Chat Slack and the Data Angels Slack community, which I think we can link in the show notes for how to join.
0: We absolutely can. So thank you so much for joining us, Riesling. This was a really awesome talk. I learned a lot and I know our listeners will also really benefit from listening to what you've had to say.
1: Thanks so much, Lauren. I had a ton of fun chatting. (laughs)